Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to search the Scriptures with me as we continue to discuss Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that the roots of Jesus' teaching, the roots of His Gospel preaching, in fact, lie deep in the Hebrew Bible, that 77% of our Bible that we call the Old Testament. We really should call it the Hebrew Bible. It was Jesus' Bible. Now, the Jewishness of Jesus should not mislead us into a false sense of what that means. The fact that Jesus was a Jew does not mean that we as Christians are supposed simply to carry out the law of Moses. There's a new arrangement since the time of Jesus. Jesus' teaching introduced a new form of ethical conduct for us. We are not supposed to be keeping the law of Moses. In fact, Jesus died to save us from the curse of the law of Moses. His law, the law of the Sermon on the Mount, is a law of love and freedom. And so recognizing the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness of his ways of thinking and his ways of teaching, in fact the content of his gospel, means that we reach far back to the covenant made with Abraham. The covenant made with Moses, I'm sure you realize, is not the same as the covenant made with Abraham. The covenant made with Moses consisted of a set of legal requirements imposed upon Israel only until Messiah came. But the covenant made with Abraham was not affected by the covenant made with Moses. The covenant with Abraham remains the basis of the Christian gospel. If you belong to Christ, Paul said in Galatians 3.29, then you become Abraham's descendant, and you become entitled to all the promises made to Abraham. Now, that's an excellent position to be in. To be blessed with Abraham is to be blessed with the inheritance made to Abraham. And that inheritance is directed towards Christ, of course, but in Christ you get to be a beneficiary also of those same blessings. I remind you that in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord God said to Abraham, Leave your own country, your kinsmen and your father's house, and go to a country that I am going to show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name so great that it shall be used in blessings. Those that bless you I will bless, those that curse you I will curse. All the families on earth will pray to be blessed as you are blessed. You see the enormous advantages then of being blessed with Abraham. There are incredible benefits to be had by sharing the faith of Abraham. Abraham, as I've been reminding you in Romans 4.11, is the father of the faithful. The gospel indeed was preached ahead of time to Abraham, Galatians 3 and verse 8. In Genesis 12 verse 4, in response to God's promise of the land that he was going to show to Abraham, Abraham departed. He set out as the Lord had bidden him, and Lot his nephew went with him. Abraham was seventy-five years old when he left Haran, and he took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, and all the property they had collected, and all the dependents they had acquired in Haran, and they started out on their journey to Canaan. Do you realize that you are on a faith journey also, headed for Canaan land, and that land of Canaan is not some distant region beyond the skies. It means the geographical Canaan, the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, 
That's the promised land, or the land of the promise, as the Bible calls it. It's also called the Holy Land. It's the land in which Jesus conducted his ministry, and it's the promised land in which Abraham dwelt as a resident alien, as a green card man, if you like. I want you to see how entirely geographical the biblical promise of the future is. In Genesis 13 and verse 14, this is what God said to Abraham. After Lot and Abraham had parted, the Lord said to him, Raise your eyes and look into the distance from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west, all the land you can see. I will give it to you and your descendants forever. You see, Abraham did not have to look into the sky. He was not invited to look up to heaven as a place removed from the earth. He was invited to look east, west, north, and south in order to contemplate and inspect the promised inheritance, which, as you know, he never actually received during his lifetime. The facts are that Abraham owned none of that land which God had promised him. The only portion of the land which actually became his was a small field in the cave in which he buried his wife. Apart from that, Abraham did not gain the inheritance which God had promised him. Now, this fact is plainly laid out in the book of Hebrews in a remarkable passage which tells us not only what Abraham's destiny is, but what your destiny as a Christian is also going to be. In that famous faith chapter, Hebrews 11, the writer begins by saying, What is faith? Faith gives substance to our hopes or assurance to our hopes and makes us certain of realities we do not see. It is for their faith that the men of old stand on record. By faith we perceive that the universe was fashioned by the word of God so that the visible came forth from the invisible. God's word, in other words, is creative. It produces things. And this is very much true of the gospel, which is called the word of God in the Bible. It creates in you the character that qualifies you for the future kingdom of God on the earth. It was by faith, Hebrews 11 verse 8 reads, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed the call to go out to a land destined for himself and his heirs. And Abraham left home without knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham settled as an alien, or as we might say, a resident alien, in the land promised to him, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs of the same promise. Abraham was looking forward to the city with firm foundations whose architect and builder is God. I wonder if you understood the implications of that extraordinarily interesting passage of Scripture. Did you notice that Abraham went to the promised land? Now, where was the promised land? It was the land of Palestine, geographical Palestine. It was not a place removed from this planet. Abraham actually lived on the earth in a designated piece of real estate. It was a real country on this planet which was promised to Abraham. Now remember, of course, that if you belong to Christ, Galatians 3.29, then you become heir of exactly the same promise made to Abraham. And that promise is a land that you can go and inspect now. You can go to the land of Palestine. That's where you're going to live when Jesus comes back 
to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Hebrews 11 verse 8 says it plainly, Abraham obeyed the call to go out to a land destined for himself and his heirs. He left home without knowing where he was going, and he settled and lived as a resident alien in the land of the promise, the Holy Land. I remember, of course, that Abraham is the father of the faithful, Romans 4.11, and that this model of faith, the faith demonstrated by Abraham, is commended as a model for us Christians. We are to imitate that faith. We're to have faith in the same promise of the land made to Abraham by God in that great contract in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17, and so on. Abraham lived as an alien, as a resident alien, as a spiritual tourist, so to speak, in the land, but he never gained possession of that land. Hebrews 11.13 says it plainly. All these persons, including Abraham, died in faith. They were not yet in possession of the things promised, but they had seen them far ahead and hailed them, and they confessed themselves to be no more than strangers or passing travelers in the land. I note in passing that that should be rendered in the land. Some translations render it on the earth, and they're trying to get you to believe in that translation that our real home is in heaven away from the earth, but that would be to contradict the whole force of this passage. It was the land part of this planet which was offered to Abraham. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were certainly aliens and strangers in the land which actually belonged to them by right of inheritance, but which they never received during their lifetime. Now, these famous patriarchs were longing for a better country, a heavenly one, and that's why God is not ashamed to be called their God, because he's prepared a city for them. I would plead with you not to be misled by the word heavenly, as though that means a place removed from the earth. Things that are heavenly are things of the future. They have their origin in heaven, but they're going to be manifested on this earth. Remember that Hebrews 11.8 states that Abraham lived in the promised land. The land to which he was looking forward was the very land in which he lived, but it wasn't his at that stage because he died, as did all the patriarchs and the other men of faith, they died, all of them, without receiving what God had promised. Hebrews 11, verse 39, says it with great clarity. All of these heroes of faith, one and all, are commemorated for their faith, and yet they did not enter upon the promised inheritance, because with us in mind, God had made a better plan, that only in company with us should they reach their perfection, should they attain, in other words, their inheritance, do you see there how simple this plan is? There's an enormous tension in the Bible as we await the denouement of God's great scheme. Abraham was promised the land. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob died without receiving the promise of the land. It follows, therefore, that they must be resurrected in the future so that without us, as the writer of the Hebrews states it, without us they would not reach their desired inheritance. That's to say that all the Christians of all the ages are going to attain to their future inheritance of the kingdom or the land only when Christ returns to raise the dead. I have to tell you that in the Bible, there's only one way out of death. You cannot survive as a disembodied soul 
That would be an idea entirely alien to Scripture, and it has confused and muddled the biblical story to such a large extent that people are no longer clear about what was promised to Abraham and to us as heirs of the same promise. 1 Corinthians 15.23 says plainly that the dead Christians, the dead of all the ages, are going to be raised in the first resurrection at the future coming of Christ, and not before. I have to tell you that in the Bible nobody is presently in heaven enjoying life as a disembodied soul. Nobody is currently being tortured in a subterranean hell. The rewards and judgments and punishments due to the wicked and the righteous are to be meted out only at the return of Jesus. Judgment day has not come, therefore no one has yet been judged. Judgment belongs to the future. It's at the second coming of Jesus that the righteous will be ushered into their inheritance of the kingdom of God or the land, and the wicked will be burned up, consumed as smoke in the lake of fire. There are two destinies placed before us, and we make our choices now, either to be ushered into the barn as the good wheat of the kingdom of God, or to be ignominiously destroyed in the bonfire of the lake of fire. Those are the two destinies placed before us as human beings, and the gospel of the kingdom, as Jesus preached it, urges us at all costs to choose life. I've written a book on the kingdom of God, also a booklet on what happens when we die. We'd like to offer these to you for your personal Bible study at home. Meanwhile, join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.